Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, and we are underway in Purgatorio. We've come through the first 12 lines of the first canto. <laughs> we are on our way, and we're about to do lines 13 through 27 of Canto 1 of Purgatorio. I remind you that in Season 1 of this podcast, the entire inferno lies behind us, but we are now setting out on a different path. The second third, the second canticle of Dante's masterwork comedy. Here, we are turning from the poet who inhabited the first 12 lines of the poem slowly to that pilgrim who is our plot who is doing the walk across the known universe. This is my English translation of the medieval Florentine. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com. You can drop comments there. You can leave questions there. You can talk to me there, and I can respond directly back to you there. Otherwise, just sit back for lines 13 through 27 of Canto 1 of Purgatorio. The sweet color of an Asian sapphire infused a peaceful feeling in the air and stayed pure out to the first circle. It filled my eyes with desire once more, the moment I'd gotten out of the dead air that had sickened both my eyes and my chest. The gorgeous planet that pushes us to love made the whole eastern sky laugh. Her light, even veiling Pisces, who was her escort. Turning toward my right hand and setting my mental faculties on the other pole, I saw the four stars that no one has seen since those first people. The sky seemed to exult in those glittering lights. Oh, northern locales, indeed widowed spots, deprived of a vista like that. We're going to stop right there with the appearance of the four stars over the southern pole of the Earth. We've been over much of this material before. The Dante knows the Earth is a globe. He doesn't know that the globe is in motion. He sees the universe as geocentric, but he does know that the world is a sphere. And here we have his first glimpse of the southern skies. There's been a lot of commentary on this, as you can imagine, a lot of discussion of the various star signs in this passage. And we want to talk about the eruption of the pilgrim. After all, the poet doesn't turn to look at those stars It's the pilgrim who does, our hero in this quest across the known universe. Let's get to the passage. Let's start here with a question of where are we? Let's go back to those opening lines. The sweet color of an Asian sapphire infused a peaceful feeling in the air and stayed pure out to the first circle. Where are we? We are not looking down and we are not looking around. We are looking up. This seems important as we nudge ourselves, as we kind of creep into the plot. This is, as I've said to you, a terrestrial poem that yearns for the infinite. And because Purgatorio is a terrestrial poem that yearns for the infinite, it is the most human part 
of comedy. Because whether you believe in God or not, whether you are religious or not, I don't care. As a person, you yearn for something beyond yourself. You yearn for something that tells the tale of something more fundamental than your own personal point of view. Dante is a Christian and yearns toward the Christian God in heaven. Sure, we'll give him that. We have to give him that in order to appreciate comedy. But we also have to give it to ourselves. Not necessarily that we yearn toward the Christian God, but that we yearn toward the infinite. And here, as he stands at the opening of Purgatorio, he is looking up at this gorgeous, sky that is the color of an Asian sapphire. We're going to come back to that in a minute. And it infused a peaceful feeling in the air and stayed pure out to the first circle. You should know there's a couple of translation problems here, and I want to just go over them really quickly with you. It infused a peaceful feeling in the air, as I translated it. The word in the medieval Florentine is mezzo, middle, middle ground. Some people have interpreted this to mean some of the upper star systems that fall between us and the stars way up in the heaven. Let's say the various spheres that the planets are on could be. I'm taking this to be mezzo as air because Dante elsewhere in his writings uses mezzo, this term, to mean air or atmosphere. And it's middle, like it's between us and the start of the heavens. Remember, the heavens are circling on spheres. The moon is on the first sphere. And so the middle ground would be the air between us and the sphere of the moon that is circling around us. And this color stays pure out to the first circle, the primo giro. This is a little bit difficult to understand, and you should just know that there is a lot of interpretive ink spilled on primo giro, the first circle. I take it to mean the horizon. I take it that Dante is standing here. We're coming into the pilgrim's consciousness from the poet, those opening 12 lines. And the first thing we see from his point of view is the vault of the heavens out to the horizon. You should know that some people take primo giro, the first circle, to mean the sphere of the moon. I don't because we don't really know anything about that sphere of the moon until Paradiso. And while I do think comedy is asking you to reread it, that seems so far in the future to us that it's a better interpretation for me to think of it as primo giro, the horizon. There is this color of sapphire clear out through the air, to the horizon, which brings us to our second point. It's just beautiful. Have you ever done this, gotten up in the early hours of the morning before dawn and watched dawn come? There is this moment in which the sky shifts from being a dark, inky blue, a midnight blue, to a much more sapphire blue before the sun comes up. Just think about how gorgeous this is. The pilgrim is standing up outside of the cave of Inferno, and the sky is that iridescent sapphire color. Now, there's a lot that has been written about this sapphire, and maybe it's important to explore it as an allegory, as a symbol 
but I think that we should just sit on it as something beautiful first. We come out of those opening 12 lines and the invocation to the muses and Calliope and all that we discussed, and then we come out looking up at the heavens. Remember, Dante exited Inferno, looking up at the stars, and our gaze is still there. The stars are starting to fade out. Dawn is coming. We'll talk more about this in subsequent episodes. Dawn is coming, but right now, it's that moment before dawn when the sky is that iridescent, sparkling, sapphire blue. Such a gorgeous moment. But as you well know, no one can leave it alone. (laughs) The commentary, it could never leave that alone. And a lot of footnotes in a lot of translations and even in Italian versions and printings of the comedy jump straight to allegory. I think that does the passage a disservice. They jump straight to explaining the symbolism of sapphires. But maybe we should just let it be beautiful as I just tried to do for a second. But okay, let's jump with them now. According to Ezio Raimondi in an essay on the first canto of Purgatorio, medieval gemologists, and he cites one in particular, associated the sapphire with liberty and purity. Now, you should know that liberty is going to come up a lot in this first canto. Well, if you listen to the reading of it early on in the big chunk, you know that Virgil is going to bang on and on about liberty to the old man who will appear before them. So liberty, it works. My question is, and uh, this is always the big question, did Dante know those medieval gemologists' texts? That part, I don't actually know. I do know that there's a second reference, and this may be where Dante's getting it from, in Exodus. It's in the 24th chapter of Exodus in the Old Testament, or Torah. And in the 24th chapter of that book, the covenant between God and Israel is ratified. It's actually ratified in two scenes that seem to contradict each other, but we're going to forget that. The first scene, it seems to be ratified by all the people of Israel and God. In the second scene, which is what uh, what we're concerned with, it seems to be just Moses and a bunch of elders who ratify the covenant with God for the people. In Exodus 24.10, when Moses and these elders and Aaron end up in the presence of God, God is walking on a paved street as if it is paved of sapphires, and it seems to be the regal, royal, gorgeous, pure presence of God. Dante may have that in mind here, but we have to say that all of these kind of symbolic interpretations are guesses on our part, whether medieval gymnologists or a passage in Torah, they're guesses. And here's what I want to say about that. Great poets leave their allegory open-ended. Let me let me explain this for just a second. Give, give this to me. You might be familiar with the poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Uh, it's a poem that a lot of people read when they're undergrads. It's a medieval poem. If you haven't read it, uh, there's some great translations of it out there. And it's a great story. It's a medieval uh, chivalric tale, but it's kind of an anti-chivalry tale. In the end, you find out that chivalry is hollow and has no central value in it. It's kind of a wild piece of writing. Anyway, it takes place in King Arthur's court, and this giant green knight shows up and challenges someone to a duel. Well, not a duel, kind of a beheading contest. (laughs) And that he has to fulfill. Gawain eventually has to go fulfill this bet 
having contest. Anyway, there are other poems allegedly written by the same poet. And the only reason I say allegedly is because they occur in the same anonymous manuscript. And so many people think, well, if somebody wrote this first poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, then maybe they wrote the other poems too, the Pearl, other poems in this set. Those other poems, the allegory is all explained out. In the Pearl, it's a story about finding a great pearl, and it's all about Jesus, and it's got all kinds of Christological references to it. But the allegory is really explained by the poet. In Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, what makes it such a great poem is it's not explained. Green? Why green? Why is the night green? Is it a spring vegetation regeneration myth? We can play and play and play in it as hearers of a medieval chivalric romance of a sort, anti-chivalric romance of a sort. Or as readers now, we can play with interpretation. And I think that's what this sapphire does. And that's why Dante is a great poet. Dante doesn't need to explain the allegory here. He doesn't need to stop and say, okay, and a, and a sapphire is like the pavement that God walks on. Instead, he leaves it open-ended. And so there's all this space for us to play. But... Before we play in that interpretive space, let's just say that our turn to the pilgrim is first gorgeous with this sky that is this color that is so beautiful. Get up some morning, just revel in that color on a clear morning. I'm going to start back at the beginning of the passage at line 13, and I'm going to read the first nine lines of this passage because I want to get to that gorgeous planet bit. The sweet color of an Asian sapphire infused a peaceful feeling in the air, and I say pure out to the first circle. It filled my eyes with desire once more. The moment I'd gotten out of the dead air that had sickened both my eyes and my chest. The gorgeous planet that pushes us to love made the whole eastern sky laugh her light even veiling pisces who was her escort it's that the gorgeous planet this is venus the planet of love we know this because venus is often the goddess of love we also know this because venus is often interpreted as the planet of love and in dante's own work the convivio in book two chapter five lines 13 through 15 Dante talks about the various planets and how they spin and which angels control which planets. But at the end of that discussion, he comes out with, but of course, the ancients, the classical writers like Virgil and Ovid, who he names in the passage, identified Venus with love. I just love this. Made the whole eastern sky laugh. Her light even veiling Pisces, the, the astrological constellation Pisces. Her light even even veiling Pisces, who was her escort. Pisces is the fish, and you should think about ichthus and Jesus and the early Christian symbolism of the fish and the way that that fish became an early symbol, let's say, in catacombs of Christians meeting and Jesus calling his disciples to be fishers of men. So we have this classical reference of Venus as the star of love. We also have it ha happening inside of an astrological symbol that may have Christian symbolism in it. But more than that, this is what I love. 
We just passed Lucifer, remember? We just passed Dis. We climbed down him. We grabbed all of his fur. We climbed down his shank. We turned around right at his butt and righted ourselves and came out. And then we saw his legs sticking up. And then we climbed out. And then we got up here. You realize what's happened right here? Lucifer hasn't been redeemed but the morning star has. Lucifer, in that Isaiah passage that we talked about, the morning star that Christians interpret as the fall of Satan, Lucifer is identified with this, the morning star. Here, just a few lines after we got beyond Satan in Inferno, we have Venus, the morning star, rehabilitated. What had been a symbol for the fall of Satan here is a physical reality that pushes us to love and causes this unbelievable moment of the sky to laugh. And of course, we should say that Venus is all about love. <laughs> and well, I've said that a million times. Just think about that. Love. We just came out of Inferno. Love. Love. I want to, I want to scream it at you. Love. Why? Because Love is the great theme of Purgatorio. Love, <laughs> more than anything, is a terrestrial human response that yearns for the infinite. What else is love? What else is holding someone at night? What else is being in love with someone? Okay, maybe holding someone is not the desire for the infinite, but kind of. It's the desire for something beyond yourself, something that lies out beyond the edges of your skin, something that says this is not just a solipsistic world, that there is somebody that I love, parent, children, spouse, whoever that is, friends. I have several friends like this in my life who the minute I see them, I can just feel my insides kind of let go go right around my chest. I can feel the pressure let go. It seems to me that love is the terrestrial hope for something beyond the self, or as I've said a thousand times now, the terrestrial hope for the infinite. However, there's a problem. There's always a problem, right? There's a problem right here. And let's talk about that problem. Venus was not the morning star in the year 1300. We know that the poem is taking place in the year 1300, but Venus didn't rise before the sun in the year 1300. We know that. And Venus in Pisces, maybe kind of in Pisces, if you especially if you accept, as I do, the March dating of comedy and not the April dating. Nonetheless, Venus is not the morning star in the year 1300 that the journey of comedy is set. So what is going on here? Let me tell you that there has been a ton of scholarly ink spilled on this very subject. I'm not going to be able to solve it for you in any way except in my own way. Uh, there is a star chart from the year 1301 in which at essentially this date, Venus is rising before the sun. And there's a question of 
A, did Dante get his star charts wrong? And he was looking at one for 1301 and misinterpreted it for 1300. That doesn't seem really likely, but maybe uh, it could be. There's a lot of people who argue that. There are other people who argue that, oh, well, you know, really this whole dating of it in 1300 is wrong and the journey takes place in 1301 because of this passage. I don't buy that because of other references in the poem to when it occurs in the year of Jubilee. I think it is pretty incontrovertible that the walk across the known universe happens in the year 1300. My answer is Dante's free to make it up. He's free to put Venus wherever he wants it. He's free to put Pisces wherever he wants it. This is his world. He's creating this world. And maybe this is a postmodern answer. And maybe it's not one that would satisfy many medievalists. But it certainly satisfies me. Dante is allowed his space. If he wants Venus to be the morning star in Easter morning of the year 1300, then so be it. And that is what uh, is, in fact, indicated by the passage here. And it trips a lot of scholars up. But honestly, just for me, give the poet his due and let him do what he wants to do. Those opening nine lines have an incredible emotional movement. Think about how we moved here. The sweet color of an Asian sapphire infused a peaceful feeling in the air and stayed pure out to the first circle. Okay, so our first bit is color. And then we slowly move from color to feeling, a peaceful feeling in the air. And it's generalized across the landscape. And then we turn from that feeling, which is hanging in the air, not in a person. We turn slowly toward the person and that feeling gets internalized. It filled my eyes. There's the pilgrim. It filled my eyes with desire or perhaps delight. The word is diletto. It's not exactly desire, although Dante does occasionally use it for desire. Desire, delight. Either way, it filled my eyes with delight, with desire. Once more, the moment I'd gotten out of the dead air that had sickened both my eyes and my chest, morta ora, dead air. And morta ora is an instant callback to what we just saw in the last passage, morta poesi. Dead poetry, dead air. The passages seem to be echoing each other. So we have this feeling in the air. It gets located inside the pilgrim. The pilgrim feels the regeneration happen, and then it moves back out to an even larger space, not just the air, but all the way out to the heavens, to Venus, the gorgeous planet that pushes us to love, made the whole eastern sky Laugh, her light even veiling Pisces, who was her escort. Laugh. I know a lot of translations give it as smile, but the word used there, the Florentine word, Dante often uses for laughter. So the world, the cosmos, is laughing. It's such a great movement, right? From color to feeling to the passing away of this dead feeling to laughter. Just think about that emotional landscape in those nine lines. It's really beautiful, and it really holds together in a beautiful way before the pilgrim makes his first physical movement. Going on in the passage, turning toward my right hand. So if Dante was facing east in order to see 
Venus as the morning star. If he turns to his right hand, right, remember all those left turns in Inferno? If he turns to his right hand, he's now going to be facing the South Pole. And setting my mental faculties on the other pole, I saw the four stars that no one has seen since those first people. There's a lot to unpack here, so let's just start with first people, prima gente. Who are these first people? Now, let me tell you, if you have read comedy, you know the answer to this. But if you haven't read comedy, this is weird. This sits here as strange. First people. Who are the first people? Most likely, Dante's readership in his own day would think of the people in the classical golden age, especially because he uses the term prima gente, gente, which is not necessarily individuals, but ethnic groups, peoples. That word, it can mean individual people, persons, but it often is used to indicate larger groups. And the first group that would leap to your mind as a medieval reader would be those figures from the classical age. We should let it sit there. We should let it sit there as strange as it seems. Wait a minute. Are we hearkening back to the golden age of the world in the classical story. Now, ultimately, and now I'm going to ruin it for you, ultimately, you're going to discover that the first people are Adam and Eve. And probably if you have been raised in a Jewish or Christian tradition, you knew that was coming. You probably anticipated Adam and Eve, but you don't really know how Adam and Eve could have seen these stars that are visible under the South Pole when, in fact, the Garden of Eden is usually located in Mesopotamia, up in the what we now call the Middle East or up east of the Levant. In fact, we will find out that Adam and Eve were here when they were created and they saw these stars. This is all part of Dante's imaginative landscape. And after we have read all of Purgatorio, we will know this. And after we've read Paradiso, when we meet Adam, we will know all of this that they have been here. But for the moment, you should just know that this prima gente sits there very strange and a medieval reader would pause wait what did the classical world happen in the opposite hemisphere did it happen under the southern stars is that where that golden age was again it's going to get rewritten by dante's imagination and we're going to know this is adam and eve and this is the larger point that the classical world is ultimately rewritten by the christian world the classical world is a palimpsest well really the christian world is a palimpsest <laughs> over the classical world a palimpsest is a manuscript that someone has written another manuscript on top of common in the Middle Ages when parchment and vellum are so expensive. That's really how this passage works. It really works as the classical age, but once you've read all of comedy, you know he's talking about Adam and Eve. Let's go back to those four stars. Turning toward my right hand and setting my mental faculties on the other pole, I saw 
the four stars. Four stars. What in the world are the four stars? You can imagine that this has generated a great deal of commentary. The first thing that leaps to most people's minds, maybe, is the Southern Cross, the 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 astrological sign of the Southern Cross and the stars in it. But Dante wouldn't have seen the Southern Cross nor known about the Southern Cross. Some critics claim that Marco Polo may have seen the Southern Cross and Dante may know about it from Polo's writings. Maybe, but there is no evidence anywhere else that Dante ever read any of Marco Polo's writings. So maybe not. Uh, there's maybe an allegorical uh, interpretation here, and there probably is, as we will learn as we climb up Mount Purgatory. These four stars, which are legitimately stars, represent the four cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. We have to leave that off because we will come to understand that as we encounter more and more of Purgatorio. But right now, you really couldn't give this an allegorical symbol. You have to have gone forward and then come back to this in order to understand it. What's important here is to see the poet's world-building comprehensive exercise of writing. The poet Dante is involved in world building. Over the Southern Pole, there are four stars. Ultimately, this world building will come to such crazy moments as to include Adam and Eve in the Southern Hemisphere. This world building is happening around us, and it's sometimes easy to forget that. It's sometimes easy in the commentary tradition to get all bound up in the allegory, and oh, I found the answer to this, and later in Purgatorio, we learned that these stars are this and that and the other, and ta-da, and now I set it down here in a note. Okay, fair enough. But you know what? That's a little off-putting. Why don't we let it be strange? Why don't we let the first people be strange? Why don't we let the stars be a little strange? Let their meaning open in front of us, but let them first be curious. What first people? What four stars? All of that right there is the way that you let the poem open out slowly in front of you and that you appreciate and, in fact, revel in Dante's ability to build an entire cosmos, so much so that the poem is starting to wrap up on itself the last three lines of this passage. The sky seemed to exult in those glittering lights, oh, northern locales, indeed widowed spots, deprived of a vista like that. What? The northern worlds are, they don't see these stars, they don't see these four great stars in the southern sky over the southern pole. What's going on here? Well, we have to go back to Inferno, Canto 34, lines 121 through 126, right at the end. Virgil explains it. When Satan fell, he fell all the way down, he hit the earth, he tunneled to the center of the earth in his huge fall. The mountain of purgatory was the displaced land from his fall as he hit the ground. And, as Virgil says, the land masses were ashamed to be around Satan, and so they fled to the north. 
This is the only known landmass here in this hemisphere and around the southern pole, this Mount Purgatory. And in order to interpret these last three lines, we have to remember Virgil's explanation. So the poem is folding back on itself, which means the world building is wrapping back on itself in the poem, which means like science fiction, this is the fulfillment of a complete world picture. But there's one other thing we have to say about this passage. Those last three lines, they're melancholic. They're sad. The sky seemed to exult in those glittering lights. Okay, great. You know, <laughs> these four stars are so fantastic that the whole sky seems to be happy that they're there. And then, oh, northern locales, indeed, widowed spots because they ran away from Satan up and collected on that other side of the globe, deprived of a vista like that. I mean, think about where we came from. We came from the beautiful color through the peaceful feeling, through the feeling of sloughing off the deadness of Inferno to the laughter of the sky. And we ended at a little bit of melancholy. Ah, if you live up there, if you live in Europe, in Italy, you're really never going to see this unless you get to purgatory. You're never going to see the glory of the southern sky. A little bit of mm, sadness, lost tinge of it, just at the end. Isn't that kind of brilliant? The way the passage emotionally shifts registers back and forth through intellectual games, through allegory, but it lands on this spot of... I wish that back home these stars were visible. Nice to go from laughing skies to kind of a sense of loss. Genius in just these many lines. I mean, what are we talking here? 15 lines. In just 15 lines, the emotional changes that we have rung through are rather astounding. So let's read it one more time. Canto 1, lines 13 through 27 of Purgatorio. The sweet color of an Asian sapphire infused a peaceful feeling in the air and stayed pure out to the first circle. It filled my eyes with desire once more the moment I'd gotten out of the dead air that had sickened both my eyes and my chest. The gorgeous planet that pushes us to love made the whole eastern sky laugh, her light even veiling Pisces, who was her escort. Turning toward my right hand and setting my mental faculties on the other pole, I saw the four stars that no one has seen since those first people. The sky seemed to exult in those glittering lights. Oh, northern locales, indeed widowed spots, deprived of vista like that. All that talk about love, all that talk about the stars, we're starting to watch Dante move the fence. Remember I told you this early on in Inferno, that the whole wildness of Dante is that love moves the fence? You know, now, maybe, that I was really thinking of Purgatorio. It's in Purgatorio where love is going to move the fence right and left. Through the gorgeous colors of the sky, through the sapphires, through the angels, through the people who are purgating themselves not being purgated through all of that love is going to become our dominant theme we're going to keep walking with dante the pilgrim we've just been introduced to him here at the edge of purgatory and we have got much more as you already know to go angels in boats people arriving on the shore singing 
so much more to go, including a strange old man who will appear in the next episode of this podcast. So rate it, subscribe to it, keep doing what you're doing. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you soon.